Good afternoon, and welcome to Section Hiking on the Appalachian Trail. I'm your host, John Eskelson, and I am supposed to be hiking the Appalachian Trail today. If you follow this podcast, you'll remember that the original plan was to leave from work on Thursday night, take the train up to Harper's Ferry, and then start backpacking south through North Virginia. From there, I'd go into the Shenandoah National Park, down through Waynesboro, where I'd be picked up on May 3rd by my loving and long-suffering wife. But that's not what happened. Um, Coronavirus shut us down. And uh, the last hike I took in the middle of March, the Appalachian Trail Conservancy had already asked hikers not to start or to postpone their through hikes and asked those of us looking to do section hiking to stay off the trail. My buddy Alex and I went one additional hike and saw only one person who might have been a through hiker. And aside from a couple doing a day hike that Friday afternoon, we literally saw no one else on the trail. It was really eerie. As things began to progress, I listened further about what the ATC had to say about the situation. Basically, the thought was, is if you have a bunch of youngish hikers who become carriers to the disease, but are asymptomatic, they might go through and spread it across rural towns that sustain the trail and its hikers. The biggest challenge is, is were that to occur, these towns could be decimated by the virus. The other challenge that the ATC thought about is that what do you do if there's a group of hikers who come down sick with coronavirus in the middle of nowhere, especially near one of these towns that doesn't have the resources or the infrastructure to handle a situation like that. On top of that, if you get a bunch of hikers who get sick, what do you do? Start, put search and rescue uh, on the hunt for them? Uh, you know, put them put their own lives at risk. So I've postponed my trip. In the meantime, I've done a bunch of walking and hiking around my neighborhood. I've started listening to Bill Bryson's book on hiking the Appalachian Trail, A Walk in the Woods. And I'll probably do another podcast when I finish that to tell you what I think. And I'm looking at other Appalachian Trail related items as I've dug deeper into the topic of the trail and what it means and its impact on the United States of America. So that to, so to that end, I have discovered in February that the Supreme Court considered a case involving the Appalachian Trail, specifically its legal designation and how the law views it. But before we move on, I'm gonna segue seamlessly to an ad or two, and then we can talk about this. We are sponsored today by the Committee to Restore America's National Parks. This is an advocacy group for everyday people who want to convince Congress to eliminate the $12 billion maintenance backlog in our national parks. Please go to their website and support them at www.RestoreAmericasNationalParks.org. Okay, so we're back. So let me tell you about this case. It's not really about the Appalachian Trail, but about a 604 mile natural gas pipeline that's going to go from West Virginia to North Carolina. A group of conservation and environmental groups uh, led by the Cowpasture River Preservation Association has sued to stop the pipeline project from going forward. A particular issue was whether part of the pathway of the pipeline was appropriately placed on National Forest Service land. Basically, uh, they sued to, ba- to against the pipeline, and one of the things that they that the environmental group sued about 
is basically saying you didn't do or follow all the necessary steps in order to gain the necessary approvals to put this pipeline through um, through Forest Service property or Forest Service lands. And on top of that, there is a crossing of the Appalachian Trail um, about, you know, I guess it crosses the Appalachian Trail at some point in the Blue Ridge. And they're saying that the Forest Service, even though that portion of the trail is administered by uh, the Forest Service, it's really the Department of Interior and the National Park Service that has a right to say uh, whether or not the, the pipeline can go there. So the, so the Forest Service and the feeds its recommendations into the federal, uh, the FERC, the Federal Energy something or something. I'll look it up later. Uh, the, the Federal Energy Regulation Commission, and they're the ones who determine whether or not a pipeline gets to be um, uh, built in this country. But they have to get these recommendations and environmental impacts from all these different federal agencies uh, before they give the final approval. And they go through this process and they figure out that they, 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 they grant the uh, authority for the pipeline company um, to actually engage and, and build the pipeline. Uh, Cow Pasture and its uh, supported groups um, sue to say, no, you did it wrong and we shouldn't do this. And took it to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is a federal court that reviews decisions in this instance by the Federal uh, Energy Regulatory Commission. And the circuit covers uh, North and South Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, and West Virginia. And to summarize what they do in this instance, uh, they basically throw the book at the Forest Service officials who granted the pipeline permit, um, especially on the 21 miles of pipeline that's going to uh, traverse or go through to national forests. The reason the circuit court is so mad at the Forest Service is because, like I said, there's a number of rules and re reports required um, studying the, the environmental impact that uh, running a pipeline through a national forest would have on uh, the environmental and uh, you know, land mass and the landslide possibilities and um, its impact on the flora and fauna, et cetera, et cetera. Specifically, um, there's specific criteria laid out in the National Forest Management Act and the Mineral Leasing Act, as well as the National Environmental Protection Act. Uh, and because the way Congress has passed all the law, these laws, um, you know, the regulations um, that are required of, you know, to implement these laws were done by, were, were kind of given to the uh, Department of Agriculture, which the Forest Service belongs to, and to the Department of Interior, um, to establish rules for actually managing the forest. And so what that essentially means is that these agencies get to write the rules, is responsible 
for overseeing. Now, normally these rulemakings have time for public opinion, uh, public input, and interest groups uh, weigh in heavily on the process and fleshing out the regulations. Um, they don't just get to make them up themselves, but most importantly, once the Forest Service makes a rule, it has to follow it. And so over the course of 60 pages, the four, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals says in its opinion that the Forest Service had these rules it was supposed to follow, but failed to do so. And it specifically talks about four different areas where the uh, federal government failed to do various environmental analyses or meet the regulations that the government made to govern itself. Now, let me walk through those real quickly. Uh, the first rule that it failed to do is in the development of this environmental was the development of an uh, environmental protection plan to mitigate the environmental damage of the construction of the pipeline. The Forest Service initially did what it was supposed to do, identifying places of potential environmental concern and proposing plans to mitigate it. But somewhere along the line, as the timeline for approval of the pipeline got closer, the Forest Service's concerns started to disappear and the requirements that the pipeline company would need to make were no longer required. And of course, they end up approving the, the pipeline. The Court of Appeals basically says not so fast. They note that the government did not follow the various environmental protection statutes and that those statutes you know, don't require an environmentally friendly outcome. But what they do require is that the government do the work of identifying and making an analysis of the potential harms to pursuing a specific development. Uh, further, the court says that the Forest Service ignored rules established in 2016 for developing uh, what are called forest, forest plans and um, ignored uh, the impact that the um, pipeline would have on those plants. Now, finally, the court takes a look at the very end of the decision, and this is what gets us to the Appalachian Trail. Um, takes a look at another statute called the Mineral Leasing Act. And that act requires the Department of Interior to determine whether a gas pipeline is permitted across federal lands. Um, according to the statute, this means all federal lands except, and this is in quotes, lands in the national park system, unquote. There's another statute governing the, nat the National Park Service called the Organic Act that says the national park system includes, quote, any land, sorry, any area of land and water administered by the Secretary of Interior through the National Park Service, unquote. So the conservation groups argued successfully that the Forest Service does not have the right to issue permits that cross National Park Service lands, even in the national forests. Now, the government obviously disagrees, and so the Forest Service exclusively administers the portion of the trail in the George Washington National Forest, which is what we're talking about, and therefore should make the, the, the decision. The government looks at another statute, the National Trail System Act, to justify its position. The reason the circuit court is so mad at the Forest Service is because, like I said, there's a number of rules and re reports required um, studying the, the environmental impact that uh, running a pipeline through a national forest would have on uh, the environmental 
and uh, you know landmass and the landslide possibilities and um, its impact on the flora and fauna, et cetera, et cetera. Specifically, um, there's specific criteria laid out in the National Forest Management Act and the Mineral Leasing Act, as well as the National Environmental Protection Act. Uh, and because the way Congress has passed all the law, these laws, um, you know, the regulations um, that are required of, you know, to implement these laws were done by, were, were kind of given to the uh, Department of Agriculture, which the Forest Service belongs to, and to the Department of Interior, um, to establish rules for actually managing the forest. And so what that essentially means is that these agencies get to write the rules is responsible for overseeing. Now, normally these rulemakings have time for public opinion, uh, public input and interest groups uh, weigh in heavily on the process and fleshing out the regulations. Um, they don't just get to make them up themselves, but most importantly, once the Forest Service makes a rule, it has to follow it. And so over the course of 60 pages, the Four Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals says in its opinion that the Forest Service had these rules it was supposed to follow, but failed to do so. And it specifically talks about four different areas where the uh, federal government failed to do various environmental analyses or meet the regulations that the government made to govern itself. Now, let me walk through those real quickly. Uh, the first rule that it failed to do is in the development of this environmental was the development of an uh, environmental protection plan to mitigate the environmental damage of the construction of the pipeline. The Forest Service initially did what it was supposed to do, identifying places of potential environmental concern and proposing plans to mitigate it. But somewhere along the line, as the timeline for approval of the pipeline got closer, the Forest Service's concerns started to disappear and the requirements that the pipeline company would need to make were no longer required. And of course, they end up approving the, the pipeline. The Court of Appeals basically says not so fast. They note that the government did not follow the various environmental protection statutes and that those statutes, you know, don't require an environmentally friendly outcome. But what they do require is that the government do the work of identifying and making an analysis of the potential harms to pursuing a specific development. Uh, Further, the court says that the Forest Service ignored rules established in 2016 for developing uh, what are called forest, forest plans and um, ignored uh, the impact that the um, pipeline would have on those plans. Finally, at the end of the opinion, the court says that there's another statute where the Forest Service really screwed up. And the statute is called the Mineral Leasing Act. And what that statute requires is that the Department of the Interior, which is over the National Park Service, gets to determine whether a gas pipeline is permitted across federal lands. Now, according to this statute, this means that all federal lands, except, and I say this in quotes, lands in the national park system um, are 
covered by the uh, Mineral Leasing Act. And so you have to go to another statute called the Organic Act, which governs federal lands on National Park Service that says the national park system includes, quote, any area of land and water administered by the Secretary of Interior through the National Park Service. Now, the conservation groups argued successfully that the Forest Service didn't have a right to issue a permit that crossed lands governed by the National Park Service, in this case, the Appalachian Trail, even if the Appalachian Trail goes through national forests. The government obviously disagrees with this and says that the Forest Service exclusively administers the portion of the trail in the George Washington National Forest, which is where this uh, pipeline will go through, and therefore should be making the decision. And it walks through a number of other statutes um, that is rejected wholesale by the Court of Appeals. Uh, the key statement is that uh, it says, quote, the problem with the Forest Service argument is it misreads both the Mineral Leasing Act and the National Trail System Act, another statute that governs, you know, how the trail is developed and, and maintained and who has right to do what. The court says that because we're talking about land administered by the National Park Service, it means the Department of Interior is the place where the decision needs to be made with regards to the pipeline crossing the trail and not the Forest Service. So if I was cow pastures attorneys after this decision, I'd be really happy because they win big. Now, of course, all this is set up for going to the Supreme Court because the pipeline company is really upset and appeals this decision to the Supreme Court. And it takes up the decision, it takes up to the question as to whether the Forest Service had the right to issue permits uh, for the pipeline to cut across the Appalachian Trail and how these interlinking statutes, so we've talked about the National Trail System Act, the Mineral Leasing Act, the Organic Act, and a bunch of others, uh, play with one another. So we go to oral argument. Um, both the pipeline and the conservation groups have filed a lot of papers laying out their arguments um, as to why it's important that we designate the Appalachian Trail one way or, or another. The pipeline saying that the Appalachian Trail being administered by the National Park Service doesn't matter as a matter of law um, for the um, permits to be issued by the National Forest Service, uh, the conservation group saying it's a very important issue and they get to oral arguments um, where the members of the Supreme Court really dug into what each of these statutes mean and how they work together and practiced. Now, as an aside, one of the key ways one loses an oral argument before the Supreme Court is to identify a rule that comes off as unreasonable or untenable, namely one that leads the court to see a party's interpretation as very overly broad. The best one can do is to prepare a compelling argument that their side is in, you know, is making a normal, reasonable, everyday thing 
that's been done a dozen times before, except for this one little part. And that's not what appears to happen here. Now, I'll issue this caveat. I very much could be wrong, and the pipeline is going to lose. I think that they're going to win, though. Um, so, but before we go further, I want to say that the cow pasture folks and the other envir environmentally friendly plaintiffs were represented by a man named Michael Kellogg, who is a brilliant attorney and whose law firm my wife tempted for back in the summer of 2001 while I was clerking for the Federal Communications Commission. And they treated her and the other temp employees as not entirely human. You had to ask an associate overseeing the temps for a key to use the bathroom, for instance. But I also love our national parks and I'm interested in its protection, uh, in their protection and the protection of the Appalachian Trail from those who encroach upon it. So I'd hope they do well argument and Mr. Kellogg made the best argument he could. I just don't think it's going to be enough. The government argued that the portion of the Appalachian Trail that falls onto Forest Service land is practically taken care of by the Forest Service and noted that the National Park Service has about eight employees overseeing the Appalachian Trail at Harper's Ferry. The court then moved directly into a discussion about what it takes um, to be federal land. What does the National Trail System Act mean when it refers to federal lands administered under it? What does that make the Appalachian Trail? Is it the trail or is it public lands? And what does that mean in the law? The pipeline was represented by an attorney named Paul Clement, and he argued that the trails administered by the National Park Service, like the Appalachian Trail, are not the same as the land it traverses, that the land itself is governed by the Forest Service. And this is how and this is kind of evidenced by the fact that the trail moves from time to time. He talked about the context of the law and showed how the law is similar to the National Trail System Act, uh, and how, uh, which was specifically linked to the transfer of land to the Park Service and what that looked like. And finally, he discussed the consequences associated with cow pasture and the environmental group's position. And this is, I think, key. He basically argued, and quite successfully, I think, that if the land that the Appalachian Trail goes over is governed by the National Park Service, it means that all pipeline development stops in this country. Because under that rule, all other lands, quote unquote, administered by the National Park Service would also be required to gain permission from the Department of Interior through the National Park Service if their um if they were trying to do any further development so he noted that there are two dozen trails that the national park service administers some of them go through woods and some of them over bridges and some of them go through downtowns for instance the montgomery national historical trail goes through downtown selma alabama he also cites the national historic trail which starts in kansas city and goes through portland his point is that the rule pushed by cow pasture and other groups and so eloquently articulated by Mr. Kellogg can't be the rule intended by Congress because it would place tens, if not hundreds of thousands of acres of land across the entire United States under the administrative control of the National Park Service 
who would have to be consulted before any development work were to occur. And that's a rule that I don't think the Supreme Court will be able to get behind. And this is the first thing that happens to make me think that the Supreme Court is going to rule in favor of the pipeline company. The second thing that happened during oral arguments to make me think that the pipeline will win is that when Mr. Kellogg rose to speak on behalf of cow pasture and other groups opposing the pipeline, he went straight to the issue of whether the pipeline being 600 feet underground matters. Now, this was something that where the court spent a lot of time. They talked about how deep the pipeline is going to be and who has the rights to determine how deep something is. And does the Appalachian Trail sit on top of the surface or is it something more than that? Um, Mr. Kellogg puts together a compelling line of reasoning that the various land management statutes we've been discussing show that because the National Park Service administers a thing, whether it's a historic building, a monument, a parkway, or a trail, then it counts, counts as an area of land. Hence, I'd add, no pipeline. If there's to be a change to that distinction, it needs to be defined further by Congress, but it can't be a rule made up by the Forest Service. But what happens then is that the court delves into this idea presented by Mr. Kellogg about his statutory interpretation and what it means to the other uses and environs if we transfer all this land to the national park system. I mean, the pipe guy, pipeline guys, you know, Mr. Clement, made a compelling argument too. And Justice Breyer specifically gets to the, the different hypothetical situations. And here I know it's common that Justice Breyer will have a massive hypothetical and oral argument to flesh out what he thinks the strongest arguments are. The court ends up in that it treats the Appalachian Trail and other long trails administered by the National Park Service as easements in its discussions on the bench in which the trails traverse over property owned by others. And, Mr. and so while Mr. Kellogg gamely pushes his theory against and pushes back against these questions, poking holes, um, he does, and he's able to do so until Justice Breyer asks whether the National Park Service is federal land that goes down to the center of the earth. And Mr. Kellogg initially demurs to fight on other grounds, but eventually says, yeah, the property rights um, administered by the National Park Service go to the center of the earth. And while he denies that this reading of federal property rights is an impermissible barrier, as Chief Justice Roberts calls it, it really is. And that's going to be too much for the court to swallow. When I reread the transcript on paper, I listened to it for the first time on a podcast, but when I reread it on paper, you don't get the same feeling. It's really quite something to hear the way the court members respond to Mr. Clement's arguments in favor of the pipeline's understanding of the law and the way they clearly, at least it seems like a majority of them, clearly don't agree with Mr. Kellogg's position. Justice Sotomayor, who is, you know, in our traditional ways of thinking about the court, sums it up this way. In my own judgment, the most serious one is that the view, is the view that if everything the park department administers, the entire trail, that means that it can stop pipelines or other things across the country. The 200,000 or so miles, whatever this is. And I don't know that you have actually articulated concisely a response to why that parade of horribles is not likely. But it's not just her view. 
This view was pushed by justices across the court, and it looks like most of the traditional conservative folks like Roberts and Gorsuch and Alito and Kavanaugh seem to be in favor of this. Um, Justice Breyer seems concerned about this, and even Justice Sotomayor seems concerned about it. That's potentially six. Um, Justice Thomas doesn't normally ask questions, so it isn't sure certain which way he will go. The only ones who might be against the pipeline based on oral argument is, you know, maybe Justice Kagan and Justice Ginsburg. So what does all this mean? If the Supreme Court reverses the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals on its portion, on the portion of its decision about what statute governs the Appalachian Trail, maybe the Fourth Circuit's harsh denunciation of the Forest Service was wrong in other aspects. After all, if I'm right, this means that the drafter of the sentence in the Fourth Circuit opinion that I mentioned before where it said that the Forest Service misunderstood the Mineral Leasing Act was wrong in their description of how the government understood other statutes at play. At the end of the day, if the uh, pipeline company wins, it means that they stay in the game to pursue their pipeline. Um, but it doesn't mean at the end of the day there'll be a pipeline underneath the Appalachian Trail. After all, the Forest Service still needs to deal with the other issues, um, doing the necessary environmental protection work that it failed to do, um, failed to live up its own regulations. And more likely, the Forest Service will take a year or two, and that will take us well past the elections in November, where the conservation and environmental groups are going to be hoping that Joe Biden will be elected president and will nominate political appointees at agriculture and interior who are more suited to their view of the world. What this means is that I think their best play is to have Joe Biden be elected president and let uh, political appointees do a review or shut down this pipeline um, administratively without having to go further legal legal avenues. So that's the case um, affecting the Appalachian Trail and what it means. I do think that the environmental groups, though laudable in their desire to minimize the development of, of pipelines, especially those that cross the trails, are a little misguided. I mean, the amount of power and the what they want to imbue the National Park Service with, um, especially on a trail that was created through a number of other trails that goes primarily through private and state lands, um, just kind of overstepped um, its bounds. And when taken to the Supreme Court, um, they kind of looked and are gonna say, no, this isn't right. We can't, maybe the Forest Service screwed up in issuing its permits across Forest Service lands and needs to reduce some work, but we're not gonna make a rule that, a rule that extreme that basically says uh, Selma, Montgomery, Portland, Oregon, Alexandria, Virginia, and other cities and locales are gonna have to seek permission from the National Park Service before they do development. Now, before I wrap this up, um, I want to make a bit of commentary about one of my other passions, and that's the game of baseball. 
without baseball playing in this, the, you know, playing its season so far, I decided to rewatch the World Series of my team, the Washington Nationals, from last season. And I gotta say that the state of calling games in these big games is atrocious. I understand the impulse and need of color commentary to create real-time narratives for these baseball games. But whether it was against Milwaukee in the wildcard game, Los Angeles in the divisional series, or Houston in the World Series, the narrative was always how good the team who ended up losing the series was. The only series where the Nationals got the benefit of the doubt was when they were against the Cardinals in the championship series, but that's only because they beat them up so badly and consistently that there was no choice but to do so. I guess what I'd like to, from my sports commentary, and you know, if you're if you're announcing baseball games or any sort of sporting events, and you listen to this podcast, pay attention to who you're watching play, and we need you to be as unbiased as possible. Also, do some real research and understand the story of the team from from the year. Last year, the Nats were atrocious through May 23rd, and then after May 23rd. They either had the best or the second best record in Major League Baseball. I can't remember exactly what kind of feat this was, but the fact is is that in these playoff games, they acted like the Nationals barely scraped in there and barely got in and did not recognize the talent of the team. I don't think you always can predict or root for, you know, know who's going to win the game. And I understand... So before I go, I wanted to briefly discuss, kind of express my disgust with a different passion that I have, and that's baseball. I really miss professional baseball, and I wish that we were playing games right now. I understand why we're not. So without baseball, I've st- I went back through, and I'm watching, and I haven't watched all the games yet. But I'm watching uh, the Nationals playoff run from last year. And it was a phenomenal run by the Washington Nationals. Um, The scrappy, industrious team full of vets who just knew how to put together a win by the end of the game. But here is something I really disagree with. And that is the way in which these games are called, particularly the big games, it's absolutely atrocious. So like I understand the need and the impulse of color commentators to create a real-time narrative of a baseball game. But whether it was in the wildcard game against Milwaukee, the divisional series against Los Angeles, or the World Series against Houston, The narrative was always the same, namely how good the team that lost ultimately was against the Washington Nationals. The only series where the Nationals got the benefit of the doubt was against the Cardinals in the championship series, but that was because they beat up on them so badly and consistently that there was no choice but for the commentators to do so. I guess what I'd like like to have for my sports commentary is be as unbiased as possible. Also, do some additional actual research and understand the story of the team 
for the year. Last year, the Nationals were atrocious through May 23rd. But after May 23rd, I think they had the best or the second best record in all of baseball. That's an incredible feat. And none of these guys seemed to notice. I don't think you can always, you always need to root or can predict who's going to win a game. But I also understand, like in the World Series Game 7, when Zach Granke has already beat the Nationals once and is doing really well in Game 7 again, that you're likely going to think he's going to, he's going to win. But you can't give Astros the game in the fifth inning and direct all your attention in that direction. Anyway, I'll stop there. Let's just try to do a better game, better job, guys. Just be mindful that veteran players like Howie Kendrick, perennial all-stars like Anthony Rendon, grizzled veterans at the end of the careers like Ryan Zimmerman, all can somehow manage to hit key thing, key get key hits necessary to get men on base and get them scored. And then Juan Soto can come up and hit a double down the right field line and knock in three runs for the win. Anyway, I'll stop there. Rant over. I really appreciate uh, for you taking the time to listen to this episode and to listen to what I'm thinking about as it relates to the Appalachian Trail. Um, I also recently got a copy of AWOL's Guide and I'm eagerly looking through it. Um, If you're interested, please listen to us and rate us on the various podcasting platforms that we're on. And let us know what you re- let us know what you really think. Appreciate uh, the listen, and we will see you next time. Take care.